Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. In this episode, two recovered alcoholics break down one chapter of the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous line by line. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com. Thank you for listening. Cord. Uh, and uh, Melissa, I'm going to make you a host also. Um, if I am outside and then are we still recording? Yes. Okay. So I'm muted and Melissa is. Awesome. Thanks, Kat. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I'm Melissa. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Um, my Sparty date is 12-10-2017. And I'm excited to be here. Um, so today, we, Kat and I are going to go over the doctor's opinion. So we're going to start on Roman numerals. I don't know Roman numerals. So it's just XXV in the big book, in the front of the book. Um, and I'll just get started reading and I'll stop a lot, probably. Um, the doctor's opinion is super short, but it has so much good information. So, um, all right. Well, I'll get started. Um, says the doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So, I love that they put an actual doctor's opinion in this book (laughs) because for me, um, I, especially in the beginning, you know, I didn't think it was possible for me to recover. Right. And even though I trusted my sponsor and I didn't think that everybody was lying to me, um, I just thought, I mean, I just think that it's really good to have a medical opinion of someone who has a lot of experience treating alcoholics that this thing is legit. Um, because my mind can literally tell me any, <laughs> my mind tells me crazy stuff, right? So it's really hard to argue with a doctor in my brain, especially when I'm new, right? So It says, to whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So, well, we'll talk about Dr. Silkworth in a second. So basically, what's really cool about this is we have an actual doctor telling us that there were people he regarded as hopeless, right? Alcoholics all over the world that he regarded as totally hopeless. And they found a solution in AA. 
right? And it's really cool because he's sitting here saying it's not just one person. It's not just that this treatment worked on two people. It worked on himself and over 100 others, right? So that just kind of backs up what we get into later in the book where, um, and in the forward to the first edition where he's talking or, you know, we're reading that we have all recovered, right? We have reached that state of mind where alcohol is not an issue for me anymore. So I think that's really cool. Um, I personally know scores of cases who were of the, who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. And I, I relate to that for sure. Um, I tried every single method to stop drinking and I refused to try AA right? Because I tried it so many times or what I thought was AA, what I thought was the program. Um, But I had never tried to work the program as it was written in this book, right? And that's what he's talking about. Says these facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group that they may mark a new epic in the annals. I probably pronounced that wrong. Of alcoholism, these men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. Right? So Dr. Silkworth was a doctor at Towns Hospital, um, and he had worked with thousands and thousands of alcoholics. And what's funny about Dr. Silkworth is he would prescribe the same solution to every or almost every person, right? And what he found was that most of the men that came into his hospital, he would say, okay, do X, Y, and Z, right? Here's your treatment plan. And they would do the treatment plan and they would leave and he would never see them again, right? So the treatment plan worked. And then there are about 10% of the people that he saw that they would do the treatment plan. They would leave the hospital and he would see them back you know, and every, with everybody at different times, but he would see them again and they were in worse condition. And so he started wondering like, what is different about this 10% of people versus all the other people that I treat, that I see them, they go on their way, they live a good life, right? Okay, so um, it says, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement, which follows. So he wrote this letter and he's about to enlarge um, on his findings, his views about that 10% of people, those 10, about that 10% of people. So Can I interrupt this, real quick? Sorry. What page are we on? We are on XVI. Thank you. No problem. Um, it says in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So this is really good stuff. Um, I had been in and out of AA for almost 10 years and I had no idea that I had an abnormal body and an abnormal mind. Um, what I heard a lot was, oh, you have a disease, right? (laughs) But it was never explained to me, like, what does that disease look like, right? What does that mean? What, how, how does it affect my body? Like nothing. I never understood that, right? Um, I thought when people told me I had a disease that it was just a cop out for like my bad behavior, right? Um, Oh, you know, don't blame me. I have a disease, right? (laughs) Um, But no, what Dr. Silkworth actually found is that I 
I, as an alcoholic woman, have a physical and mental difference, right? That's what we just read. My body is abnormal and it's quite as abnormal as my mind, right? So that's kind of crazy. And then it, it goes on to say, it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight, full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So that was a very interesting paragraph, right? Because I thought these three reasons, right? Uh, it says, we are maladjusted to life. I was in full flight from reality or I was an outright mental defective, right? It says these things were true to some extent, right? Like I could definitely say, oh, I'm drinking to forget, right? I'm in full flight from reality. I'm maladjusted to life. Like, obviously I'm not dealing with life the same way that everybody else is, right? Um, and I'm out, I'm an outright mental defective. I definitely felt that way a lot, right? <laughs> um, so it says these things were true to some extent, right? So yes, these things applied, but I used to think those were the reasons that I drank the way I did, right? Um, it says we are sure that our bodies are sickened as well, right? So what does that mean? It says the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Um, and so this allergy thing, I heard it a lot in AA. Um, I, this whole like talk is going to be me think what I used to think. Um, and I thought I knew everything, which was the funny part, right? So I, I thought that the allergy was an excuse that I used in front of people that asked me why I didn't drink. <laughs> That's what I thought people were talking about when they said, you know, oh, the allergy. I was like, oh yeah, I break out in handcuffs. Ha ha. Like, that's what I thought the allergy was about. Not true at all. Right. It, this is telling me I have an actual physical allergy to alcohol, which is nuts. Um, and it does explain many things for which we cannot otherwise account, right? It says, and you know, I, we'll get into exactly what the allergy looks like later. So though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction, paramount importance. So what's funny about that, I had no idea the doctor's opinion was like an actual chapter that I needed to read. <laughs> I thought that um, it was like a foreword, you know, which yes, you should read all of the forewords. But the way I looked at it when I was new, I had never really studied the doctor's opinion at all, um, which is funny because it's, it's of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcohol and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. 
We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And so I just think this is so cool. Like this, these doctors and especially Dr. Silkworth, right, were humble enough to admit that they don't know everything, right? And they were humble enough to go, we are doctors. And if y'all know any doctors, right, have a big ego, they know everything, right? A lot of them, not all of them, but these doctors were humble and gracious enough to go, I see something happening with this group of people and I don't know what it is. It's not something that I prescribed, but it's obviously working. So guess what? I'm going to suggest that a lot of other people try this thing too, which is so awesome, right? Thank God for that. Um, it says many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application. Bill W. Right. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through, we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field, right? I think about that a lot. And I mean, if you are a recovered alcoholic, if you're sponsoring women, um, it can get kind of hopeless, right? Because there's a lot of people who aren't ready to stop and it's not our job to make anybody stop, right? It's our job to plant a seed, but I can only imagine a doctor working at a hospital for alcoholics, like how hard that that can get sometimes, right? So it says they believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So this is really cool. Um, and I think it's awesome regarding service work, right? Like Bill goes to the hospital, he has his spiritual experience, right? And then he, immediately he is thinking, how can I help other people? How can I present this to somebody else, right? And and think about it this way. If Bill had gone, oh, well, I only have a couple weeks sober, right? I only have a couple weeks sober, so I can't help people, right? Like that if he had thought that way, we would not be here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I mean, it lays it out right here. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, right? And this is so funny because with alcoholics, like for me anyway, I was selfish to the core. I had no interest in helping other people. I thought that was for like nice people who did charity work, not me. Um, so the fact that on the previous page, it says you may rely absolutely on anything they say about them, themselves. Yeah. Um, it, and then event, and then it goes over to say that the unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, like these are totally different people than the newcomer alcoholic who hasn't worked the steps and who can't stop drinking. You know what I mean? These are totally different human beings. 
Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. And it gave me a lot of hope when I was a newcomer. Like, you're telling me that these people are so different that a doctor says you can trust them, right? And then that they are totally unselfish. They don't have ulterior motives, right? They have community spirit. That's nuts. That is not me, right? And I mean, I see that that's true in my life today, right? I don't have an ulterior motive when I'm working with another woman, you know? Um, It says they believe in themselves and still more the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. And that's so awesome, again, that a doctor would put that in a letter. Um, Because the doctor is not saying, I prescribed this treatment for them and I told them what to do. He's saying, this is a power that's pulling them back from the gates of death, which is so awesome. Um, Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Um, One, two... One, two, three. I think this is the last page I'm reading. Um, Okay. So here's a lot of the good stuff. (laughs) We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. Okay. So here's where we're getting into what does this disease look like, right? When we talked about the body and the mind in the beginning, here's where we're going to get into what that looks like in action, So it says the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics. So these chronic means I keep coming back in worse shape, right? Um, And that, number one, is so me. But number two, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier. He was really trying to figure out what was different about these alcoholics that kept coming back, yeah? Um, And it's a manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So... I have this allergy and it, we just read it, right? My allergic reaction when I put alcohol in my body is a phenomenon of craving. Yeah. So if I'm thinking of, you know, an outwardly physical allergy, right? I would put peanut, I'm not allergic to peanut butter, but let's say I was, I would put peanut butter in my body and I would break out in hives. Okay. My hives Um, When I put alcohol in my body, my reaction is the phenomenon of craving. So I immediately want another one. And this is something that's going on, again, inside my body. This is not a mental thing. Um, And that's why that phenomenon of craving is so overwhelmingly difficult to fight, right? Um, Is because it's an actual physical reaction. It is not a mental thing. And that's what's funny about this is I thought that the allergy was in my mental control, right? That if I just used my willpower hard enough (laughs) that I could stop this craving or I could fight it, right? But that's not what's going on. So what's happening is I put a drink in my body, I want another one and I can't stop that craving. And it's immensely difficult to try to overcome. Right. So they, you know, the saying is if I'm controlling my drinking, I'm not enjoying it. If I'm enjoying it, I'm not controlling it. Right. Because I have this allergy and when I'm trying to fight that craving, it's absolutely miserable. I mean, me limiting myself to two drinks was 
the most uncomfortable feeling, you know? Um, I mean, being sober in the morning was definitely more uncomfortable, but that was probably the second, right? So, okay. It says this never occurs in the average temperate drinker. I thought that everybody had this craving and they just knew how to control it better than I did. Um, I had no idea that other people were not experiencing this craving that I was experiencing, right? And when I talk about craving, when we talk about craving in the big book, we're only talking about what happens after I take the first drink. Um, the word craving is used a lot just in the, you know, addiction community as like something that happens before you drink. Um, but in the big book, we are specifically talking about after I take one drink, no matter, even if I swear up and down that I'm only going to have two and I promise myself, I'm only going to have two. Once that first one hits my body, I have no control over whether I'm having two or 10 or whatever the number is. Right. So it says these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So what really helped me understand this allergy and relate to it was I heard someone say this. Um, if I am, if I am in a blackout, and I'm still drinking, that is not in my mental control, right? And that's what I used to do. I used to black out and then I would wake up and there would be a glass of wine by my bed, right? And I would not remember getting it. Or I would go to the fridge and open the fridge and be like, who drank all the wine? <laughs> you know, and I would, I would continue to pour these drinks in a blackout. Um, and when, when I'm blacked out, when anybody's blacked out, right, that your brain is not involved in the equation. Um, if you had cut my head off, my body would be doing this drinking, right? And that really, it made a lot of sense to me because I thought like, okay, yeah. In like, when you learn about what a blackout is, it's like your body's way of shutting down and saying like, don't put any more of this substance into me right? And my body is not doing that. My body is saying, don't put any more substance. And then I'm running to the fridge, right? So it's like, there's obviously something going on there that is not normal. It's not average, right? It's, it's different than how my husband drinks, who's a very moderate drinker. And also it's like, I watch my husband drink now and I have no idea how I didn't know I was abnormal before. <laughs> because that man, and I've actually heard Kat talk about this also, we can go on vacation and he can get a mimosa with breakfast and then a beer with lunch and then a mixed drink with dinner. And guess what? At the end of the day, he's not drunk. He can drink all day and not get drunk, which is crazy to me. And it's not because of tolerance. It's because he knows how to pace himself right? He takes that first drink and then he's like, okay, I'm good. I feel drunk or like I feel buzzed or whatever it is. Right. And I'm going to not drink for a few hours. That is crazy to me. Right. Because I start my body immediately is like the next one, the next one. When are you going to get the next one? If my glass is getting low, I'm like hunting for the waitress. Where's the next one. 
right? If it's 2 a.m. and the bar is closing, I'm like sprinting to the bar at last call and ordering two doubles so that I have time, right, with my other drink and so that I don't run out, yeah? So this allergy is, is not, it doesn't happen in moderate drinkers, right? This only happens for the alcoholic. So it says, fraught the emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives, right? So fraught the emotional appeal is everyone pleading with me to stop, right? My husband going, Melissa, I'm going to cut you off at two. My mom saying like, you can't live here or whatever it is. All of these outside forces, the jails, the the people, right? My friends, that does not hold sufficient weight to get me to stop because this is again, a disease of the body and a disease of the mind. It's not a choice that I'm making, right? Um, the message has to have depth and weight. My ideals have to be grounded in a power greater than me because I have no power in this situation. Right. So it says, if any feel that a psychiatrist directing the hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder what have happened, that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. Right. And so like that, another amazing thing done by these doctors, they are like, if you don't believe us or if you think that we're being sentimental or, you know, a little out there for suggesting that a higher power is the way to go for these people, you stand there, you watch these people recover, right? You also watch like what we've seen on the other side of it, right? The terrible things that we do and the effect that it has on other people. Um, we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Like how powerful is that? Um, that is so crazy, right? After many years of experience, there's nothing that they have seen that has come close to this movement, which is so awesome. Um, so just to wrap that up, I'll let Kat start on this paragraph since it goes into the next page. And it's, um, that's like where she's supposed to start. But essentially, um, once I form this habit, I cannot stop on my own. Yeah, I am totally powerless. I have a mental and physical illness, right? And it, for me, what really helped was looking at this as something that was in my DNA, I had never thought of it that way before, right? I had always thought of it as a behavior problem. If I get therapy, if something, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this is going on because I make bad choices or, th you know what I mean? Things like that, or I'm depressed or, um, but this is something that is actually in my DNA that makes me different from, a, from my husband, from a moderate drinker, right? And what's funny is if you ask moderate drinkers about alcohol, the answers will most likely blow your mind, right? Um, I had never asked people before, hey, do you experience this craving, right? Once you start, do you want another one? Even if you said that you didn't, you know, want to get drunk tonight, did you want the next one once you started? And people are like, no, 
I never thought to ask, right? I just thought everybody felt this way and they were just better at dealing with it than me. Um, I didn't go to college. So I was like, well, everyone just learned how to drink in college and I didn't. That's like really what I thought. Um, and it, so it's just, it's wild. So um, I'm going to pass it over to Kat. She'll get into all the mental stuff um, and finish out the chapter. But thanks for letting me share. I'm sorry. I can't stop laughing about the college part. <laughs> that's what I thought. I thought that because that's what everybody says. Everyone's like, oh, it's crazy in college. And then you just figure it out. Like, that's what people said all the time. You so learn like, how to oh. binge drink in college without killing yourself, yeah. I think, is what happens. And that's about I it. Know, I don't know. I didn't finish. And I didn't go to, like, an out-of-state college or, like, where I had to live there. So I really thought, like, okay, yeah. all these people just learned in college. And then I just didn't. So now I have to figure no, out. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I don't think that's how that works. But uh, I appreciate the sentiment. It's pretty funny. Um, I went to a school where it was like uh, they had like this um, legion of students who would volunteer to sit with you if you were too drunk to make sure that you didn't like choke on your own vomit or you didn't have to go to the hospital. Um, And if you had to go to the hospital, I don't think it's the same now. I think it's a big crack down a little bit, but you could call the EMTs and you could go to the hospital without like getting in trouble or whatever. Like it was totally fine. Cause they were like, we don't want anyone to die. Right. Oh my God. So it was actually a really safe place to get really drunk. (laughs) And um, I feel like when you have those kind of bumpers around you, that is not a place where you learn to control your drinking, you know? But it's also like you get a lot out of the way and I feel like it's a lot safer than the alternative because kids are going to drink and they're going to do stupid things. I don't think it matters if you're in college or you're not, you know, like everybody, like everybody drinks stupid when they're 19 or 20 or 21, but you know, the, the little nascent budding alcoholics or the ones who started real early. Cause there are a lot of people who drink like alcoholics when they're real early on. Um, may look like everybody else, uh, but like inside, and I did look like everybody else, inside, it was a little different. And I didn't know that until I learned about this, what's in this book. And And I got like sober enough that I was able to see clearly what was going on inside of me, not externally. Externally doesn't matter. The externals of alcoholism are, are just totally unimportant. What matters is what's inside. That's why it's like, I can't tell you if you're an alcoholic. I don't know if you have this allergy. I, I don't. You have, to, you have to tell me because lots of people without an allergy can get really drunk and do stupid things. Um. And I love it when it happens to like people I'm related to, because it's really funny. It's really hilarious, but um, you know, it doesn't happen that often because they'll do stuff like, Oh, I'm really drunk and I have to drive home. I should stop drinking and just hang out here for three hours and sober up. And you're like, what are, is, are you okay? That's cool. Whatever. 
you know, and I'm like sitting there drinking Diet Coke or whatever, just like confused. <laughs> like, I'll drive you home. It's fine. You know, it's your birthday. Get drunk. It's cool. And he's like, no, no, I don't have to come back here and get my truck in the morning. Like, who does that? It's just weird, right? But like early on when I was in school, yeah, my allergy wasn't that bad. Like I didn't get wasted all the time. Or it was like, it would come on off and on. Like maybe there was like a year that I got wasted all the time. Like that first year of school, like, oh my God, like every weekend. And then the second year, like I cleaned it up a lot. And then like, I didn't always get drunk. Like I could have one and be fine. It was like no big deal. I didn't really feel like I was like dying, but like often it was like, okay, well, I just didn't know where it was going to end. And um, that I thought that was how everybody felt. And looking back at it, I may not have been drinking alcoholically. I may have been drinking like a college student, but inside that I don't know where it's going to stop feeling that I thought everybody felt was alcoholic. That was the allergy. That sort of rolling the dice kind of feeling of like, okay, well, well, that's part of the fun, right? Like <laughs> maybe everything will be cool and whatever. And we won't get that drunk. Or maybe like we'll go on some big caper and, I don't know, climb around in the tunnels underneath the campus. I have no idea what's going to happen. It's going to be awesome, you know, and, and cool. And that's, that's the fun of it. Right. And I thought everybody was like that and they weren't, they really aren't. And that, that really blew my mind. And, and what I realized kind of in treatment because everybody's like, the thing that I hear often, not everybody, but a thing that I hear often is like, oh, oh, I don't want to get sober and never drink again because I want to have a, you know, that glass of champagne at whatever event. And I'm like, what? Why? You want to have a glass of champagne? For what? I'll have a glass of Topo Chico. Like, that sounds awesome. A glass of champagne? Sounds excruciating. What is the point of that? Like, I don't want to drink like a regular person. They don't feel the same way that I do when they drink. If they did, they would get drunk all the time. I don't know what it feels like to drink like a regular drinker, like a non-alcoholic drinker. I have no idea what it feels like, and they don't know what it feels like for me to drink. That's the truth. And, um... And once I got that through my brain, it explained everything. And it also made me feel like far less of an asshole. Because it was like, oh, okay, I'm not just this total fuck up. Like, yeah, I am a fuck up. But like not, it's not entirely because like I'm just a real stupid idiot. It's like an outright mental defective. Like I might also be a mental defective, but that isn't the whole story. And, um, and this helped me a lot. Uh, there are a couple of things that Melissa covered in here about that. And again, I heard like the allergy thing and I thought it was like this little metaphor that was like great for, um, and this is so snobby because I went to this treatment center where there were a bunch of drug addicts. It was really, this is so awful. 
But I was like, this is so great. I'm so glad that they're giving this metaphor to the drug addicts to use so that they stop using. It's so good for them. Like, what is wrong with me? I'm like, I am the same as those people. Like, I am not any different. I, it's just a, a little twist of genetic code that I am an alcoholic instead of a drug addict. And honestly, who knows, you know, I just did, maybe I just didn't try all the right drugs. Maybe I just should have just tried more and then I would be a drug addict. Who knows? Like, there's nothing separating me from anybody at this point. These are my people. And, um, you know, but your little ego, your little alcoholic ego will just like grab onto anything to try to make you feel like you're okay. Like you're smarter than people or you, you know, you're above this little fake allergy metaphor. Well, it's not fake. It's real. There's sciencey stuff, but I'm not a science person. So at least not anymore. I was when I was like 14, maybe, but, um, so I'm not going to try to explain it, but there's sciencey stuff. And whatever. But what I know is when I drank, when I've been sober, not drank when I've been sober, when I've accidentally ingested alcohol when I've been sober through food cooked with alcohol or um, some flavoring that had like a little bit of alcohol in it in a drink, um, you know, or uh, butter extract, which didn't say it had alcohol on it. And I thought I was so clever because it didn't have calories, but it tasted like butter. Um, man, that, that'll mess you up. Because it will set off that allergy and you will be stone cold sober and a recovered alcoholic and it will do weird stuff to your head. Because there's physical things going on and all of a sudden you're thinking you're going to drink and it's just it's scary. It, this stuff is real. Like it's, it's not, they're not messing around. What's cool about the doctor's opinion and, and what you find over and over in these forewords is how much it talks about, um, and I, I know I'm like talking and not reading, but I'll get to the reading because there's only like three and a half pages left. Um, it talks about what Alcoholics Anonymous was at that time and what it is that makes it possible for alcoholics to stay sober and be recovered. And... Um, and they use certain words, right? But it immediately talks about on page XXV that Bill immediately started doing step 12. Um, that's the basis of our fellowship. It says, impressing upon others that we do likewise with still others. That's the basis of the fellowship. Um, this has become the basis of our rapidly growing fellowship. Uh, my fellowship that I have in AA is not people I've met at meetings and hung out with and whatever. It's people that I've carried the message with the people that I know through sponsoring the people I have sponsored their sponsees, the people that sponsor me. Um, I mean, how do I know Melissa? How do I know? <laughs> Cause we've had a great time. I care in the message. <laughs> um, how do I know the, the, some of the women on this call? And these are some of my closest friends. And it's, that's the basis of my fellowship. And when it talks about fellowship in this book, that's what it's referring to. Um, 
it talks about uh, in here, we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as altruistic plane. The steps are all about helping other people and getting connected to God. And part of being connected to God is helping other people. Because when you talk about putting into action what God wants you to do, generally what God wants you to do is not be an asshole. And, you know, usually you do that by not doing stuff for yourself all the time. Which is hard to do because all I want to do is do stuff for myself. Uh, Like today, all I want to do is do stuff for myself. Uh, It talks about how all of the doctors that were treating alcoholics was they were trying to use these sort of man-made ways of making these alcoholics into better people moral psychology powers are good, but they couldn't do it. Um, and then it talks about at the bottom of XXVII unselfishness, right? It's just all kinds of things about how this is a movement. Our solution is about helping other people. It's not about us. It's about others. And we have to do some work to get there because all I want to do is just do stuff for myself all day, every day, no matter what, even nine years sober, nine years of working the steps does not matter. That's all I want to do. Period. Just FYI. (laughs) So anyway, um, down to the bottom of the page, he says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So he's gone through and defined more or less the body issue that we have. So if I'm powerless over alcohol, I'm powerless over alcohol in my body and my mind. The big book defines it as a twofold disease, not a threefold disease. Like some people say it's threefold in that we have a spiritual issue as well, but like we're only interested in what makes alcoholics different. So it's a twofold disease because other people have spiritual issues too. We just work out our solution on the spiritual plane. So it's only a twofold disease, body and mind, right? The body is I drink, it sets off the allergy that creates a craving for more. I have no control over how much I drink and then I get drunk. The mind part is, um, is what he's about to describe. So he says men and women drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol, which is true for everybody, right? Everybody who drinks likes alcohol, which is like, okay, cool. But for the alcoholics, it's like what we're looking for is so elusive, which means it's hard to catch that while they admit it is injurious. So that means it's causing harm or injuries. So you have injuries from drinking, right? Like maybe you lose a job or a relationship or your home or you do I or whatever. Um, They cannot after a time, like we keep drinking, right? So why do we keep drinking? They cannot after a time differentiate, tell the difference between the true from the false. I can't tell what's real and not real when it comes to drinking. I know it's a problem. I know it's bad for me. But when I think about drinking, when I'm stone cold sober, I don't have a drop of alcohol in me. I know what happened the last time I drank. I had no control. I got drunk. It caused injuries. Stone cold sober. This is the mind part. And I'm like, true. If I drink, 
I'll probably have no control. I'll get drunk and something bad will happen. False. Whatever's going to get me to that next dream. Maybe it's nothing at all. Maybe it's, you know, he's not acting right. Maybe it's this time's going to be different. Maybe it's, but I'm not, I ate a ton of food. I have a full stomach. Maybe it's like, you deserve it. I used to see this billboard when I drove out to, I used to go to this treatment center that was like part of the jail system in Texas. And there was this billboard of like this guy, this contractor. Um, it might've been in Spanish, but it was like, he had like a Miller light or a Bud light or whatever. And he had a hard hat and he looked like he'd worked a long day and it said, you deserve it. And I'm like, yeah, that guy deserves it. Like I don't deserve shit. <laughs> what do I deserve? I'm like, I'm sitting at my desk working all day. Like, I don't deserve anything. That guy deserves it. <clears throat> I deserve it. I've been sober for 14 days. No, I don't. No. False. Truth. If I drink that, I'm going to get drunk and bad things are going to happen. Um, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Here's the thing. The alcoholic brain will do whatever it can to get me to think, this is okay. This is totally okay. Everything's fine. Just go drink. It'll be fine. It's not that I'm just like adjusted or in denial. It's like, I'm just totally delusional. Basically. If I were in denial, that would mean that like, I kind of know this isn't okay, but I'm, you know, like pretending like it's not delusion means I really don't know. Like, I really have no idea. You give me a lie detector test. I really think all of this is okay. Like I wake up in the morning, something bad happens I'm like, I'm not drinking today. Give me a lie detector test. I pass it. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to go have one. Give me a lie detector test. I pass it. That's not denial. That's delusion. That's crazy. That's insanity. That's the insanity of alcoholism, right? So the mind part gets into this sort of like true, false, obsessive sort of drink, don't drink, you know, whatever craziness. That's really where we get to the insanity that's called out in step two. Powerless in my mind and powerless in my body. Um, It says they're restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So some people read this and they're like, well, yeah, so when I get restless, irritable, and discontented, then I drink. And I'm like, no, I'm just restless, irritable, and discontented all the time. When I'm sober, (laughs) but like if my sobriety is dependent upon me, not being restless, irritable and discontented, like I'm totally hosed because at some point I'm going to be restless, irritable and discontented. And I'm, what am I going to do? Drink? Like, you know, I'm going to be screwed. Like the truth is I'm just restless, irritable and discontented. I drink when I'm happy. I'm drink when I'm sad. Um, it says after they succumb by the, to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops and they pass through the well-known stages of a sprees. The phenomenon of craving only happens after I drink and they pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful with the firm resolution not to drink again. So I drink, the craving develops, I get drunk, bad things happen. I said, I'm never going to do this again, but it's repeated again. Mind, obsession, drink, allergy, drunk, 
Firm resolution, mine, obsession, drink, allergy, drunk. Firm resolution is just over and over and over. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. The psychic change he's talking about is the spiritual experience. On the other hand, as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that to require to follow a few simple rules. So psychic change sounds pretty extreme, right? Except I was already getting that through drinking, so it shouldn't be that crazy. Um, And I kind of like that more than spiritual experience because I was very like not okay with this whole God thing, but it didn't really matter. I just had to do the work and be like, all right, maybe there's a God, whatever. didn't really, you know, like cool, fine, crazy hippie stuff, fine, whatever. Um, I just had to do the work. God took care of the rest, right? Uh, it says suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. The rules are the 12 steps easily able to control his desire for alcohol was the only way I was going to be able to stay sober. If I want to drink, I'm going to drink period. This idea that I'm going to have the willpower to not drink, that I'm going to be able to be on guard, that I'm going to have a defense against drinking For me, it was never going to be the case. I knew that 100%. And I'm sitting there for 20 days in a treatment center that was such, it was a great treatment center, but it was like I never got the how to not drink class. So this appealed to me. Men have cried out to me in sincere, despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. I love how he dances around this whole God thing. It's just really funny. Um, Throw the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric ethic, like therapy, is considerable. So the aggregate of recoveries is like the total number of recoveries resulting from psychiatric efforts, so like therapy or treatment centers or whatever, like the nine out of 10 people who walked away from the hospital and didn't come back is considerable. We physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the hot problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological re- approach. So these are, the ones that don't respond are the chronic hopeless alcoholics. Those are the people for whom this book is for. If you go to treatment and you can stay sober, if you, you know, can like just play the tape through, put the plug in the jug, you know, go to therapy, go to yoga, do whatever, write your trigger list down, avoid your triggers and stay sober. Cool. Awesome. You don't need to do what's in this book. That's great. Um, the people who those don't work for are, are this is who this book's for, right? Um, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, for a period of months on the some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. No, who had, for example, worked for a period of months <laughs> on some problem or business deal, which is to be settled on a certain date 
favorably to them. So things are going really well. They took a drink or so prior to the date and the phenomenon of craving only happens once you put alcohol in your body at once became paramount to all of their interests. So the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. It's not that you have a problem with reality or you're trying to escape or you are like, what is the word I'm looking for? Like you're self-defeating or whatever it is that people say, they were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control, period. <clears throat> there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice. That would be um, suicide, which is also, by the way, if someone commits suicide, that's also alcoholism. Alcoholism's goal is for you to die. So if you die through suicide or a car accident or whatever, it's still alcoholism um, rather than continue to fight. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside of the scope of this book. There are, of course, I love this part, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We're all familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over remorseful, but make many resolutions, but never a decision. The decision is step three. There is the type of man who's unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. So this is somebody who's like, oh, I have no issue with the allergy, right? He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or environment. These are all kind of ways to like try to pretend like you control your uh, allergy, right? There is a type who always believes that after being entirely free for alcohol for a period of time, this is an issue with the obsession or the insanity, he can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. I am all of these things, depending on whatever day of the week you find me, just to be clear. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. All alcoholics, chronic hopeless alcoholics, have the allergy to alcohol and they get the phenomenon of craving. If you have that, you are an alcoholic. Full stop. No arguments. Just period. Um, this phenomenon that we suggested may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, and this is still true, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but amongst physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relaying one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man who, brought, who was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism he had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage. So alcoholism can affect you in a bunch of different ways, right? And he seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. That would be wet brain. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted he, and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the, the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. So this is a good 
example of what a spiritual experience looks like. I knew the man by name and I partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him from before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and had decided his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. This is the guy who wrote two employers, by the way. Um, Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated that he thought treatment a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex, his depression so great, that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. So that's sort of like trying to get the alcoholic to be a good person. I think, I don't know for sure. Um, And we doubted if even then it would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is the finest specimen of manhood. I love that word, manhood. As anyone could wish to meet. I earliest, earnestly advised every alcoholic to read this book and the, through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Sobworth, MD. And that is the doctor's opinion. And it is pretty neat. Um, so thank you for letting me walk you through that. And I'm going to um, go ahead and start closing our meeting. Hang on. Thank you for listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. This recording is not associated with any AA group or AA world services. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com.